Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Welcome to the Bread of the Word podcast, a podcast striving to feast on God's Word and let the Bible speak to us all. Let us, as a former generation said, go ad fontes to the fountain and be nourished and sustained by all that God is. Let's dig in together. Well, hello, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Pred of the Word podcast, where we go ad fontes to the fountain, to the Word of God, to be nourished and sustained by all that God is, as he has revealed himself to us. My name is Tyler, I'm your host, and we are continuing our study in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we are actually going to finish it today. This is the last segment in the book of Ecclesiastes, and I'm very excited to come to the end of this series. It's been very edifying to me, very challenging, very... Um, very profitable book. It's a book we don't always give enough time to, but it's been great for me. Um, and so this is actually episode 99 of weekly biblical expositions. Next week will be 100. And so I'm very excited about that. And we are going to be doing a giveaway. And so for the 100th anniversary, I'm going to be raffling off um, these two items. Um, the note-taking Bible from the CSB and Living by the Book by Howard G. Hendricks and William D. Hendricks, a book on hermeneutics, and a nice note-taking Bible. Shout out to Rochester Book and Bible for providing those titles for us. And uh, you can go to Facebook or Twitter and enter that raffle. There will be a post about it. And a uh, winner will be announced next Sunday, February the 12th, um, during the episode. That will be our 100th episode celebrating that milestone and encouraging uh, people to dig deep, deeper into the Word of God and be transformed by all that God is. And so we have come to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. And often, when a book is written, the intended audience is among the first items to be discussed. But Solomon does it very different from that expectation in, in Ecclesiastes. And he seems to save that item for last. We've seen all this discussion of wisdom and death and wealth and all of these things, but we don't really have a stated audience, per se, until we get to the end. So let's read chapter 12, and we will go verse by verse breaking it down. And It says, So remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the days of adversity come, and the years approach when you will say, I have no delight in them before the sun and the light are darkened, and the moon and the stars and the clouds return after the rain. On the day when the guardians of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, the women who grind grain cease because they are few, and the ones who watch through the windows seem dimly. 
The doors at the street are shut while the sound of the mill fades. When one rises at the sound of a bird, and all of the daughters and all of the daughters of song grow faint. Also, they are afraid of heights and dangers on the road. The almond tree blossoms. The grasshopper loses its spring, and the caper berry has no effect, for the mere mortal is headed to his eternal home, and mourners will walk around in the street before the silver cord is snapped, and the gold bowl is broken, and the jar is scattered, is shattered at the spring, and the wheel is broken into the well, and the dust returns to the earth as it once was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Absolute futility says the teacher. Everything is futile. In addition to the teacher being a wise man, he constantly taught the people knowledge. He weighed, explored, and arranged many proverbs. The teacher sought to find delightful sayings and write words of truth accurately. The sayings of the wise are like cattle prods, and those from masters of collections are like firmly embedded nails. The sayings are given by one shepherd. But beyond these, my son, be warned. There is no end to the making of many books, and much study wearies the body. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commands, because this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. And so we have this declaration of our audience right off the bat. Um, even if we go a couple of verses back to uh, verse 9 of chapter 11, it says, Rejoice, young person, while you are young, and let your heart be glad in the days of your youth. And then we have chapter 12. So remember your creator in the days of your youth. Solomon is speaking of the application of the subjects he's fleshed out here for the young person, for the one who has not yet made the mistakes that Solomon undoubtedly had. Charles Bridges notes that Solomon had warned the young man by emphatic irony against those passions and pleasures to which his slippery age is most addicted. Now for the grand object set before him, thy creator. For he who created the universe is the creator of man, not only the first man, but of all men, whose birth, however natural, was only wrought by his omnipotent and sovereign influence. And so we have the question of why a young man? It's obvious. He's young. He's inexperienced. He doesn't have the same skill that an older man would have. Uh, so much so that Psalm 119 uses the image of a young man to describe the necessity of the word of God. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping your word. And in, that, in Psalm 119 there, a young person is characterized by the Hebrew word, Nayar, which means scattered one. James Montgomery Boyce comments likewise, Are you a young person? Then you should pay particularly close attention to this point. Most young people want their lives to count, and most Christian young people want their lives to count for God. Youth dreams big, and that is right. You should dream big. But youth is often more impatient and undisciplined, and young people are tempted to to let the little things slide. You must not do that if you are God's young man or God's young woman. God will make your life count, but this will not happen unless you determine to live for him 
in the little things now. And I, I read that as a 24-year-old myself. I am not exempt from this. This is something that speaks directly to me just as, as much as it does any other young person. And so Solomon has made a didactic statement here. That is, that is to say, a teaching statement because he's calling himself throughout this book the teacher. And so what follows this teaching statement, remember your creator in the days of your youth. He says, before the days of adversity come, and the years approach when you will say, I have no delight in them, before the sun and the light are darkened, and the moon and the stars and the clouds return after the rain, on the day when the guardians of the housetop tremble, and the strong men stoop, the women who grind grain cease because they are few, and the ones who watch through the windows see dimly. The doors at the street are shut while the sound of the mill fades. When one rises at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song grow, grow faint. That is one sentence. One sentence. With all these lines, all these semicolons and commas in our English translations of it, Hebrew doesn't have any of that. And so it just runs and runs and runs. So let's, let's break this down section by section. Um, first of all, we have before the sun and the light are darkened, and the moon and the stars and the clouds return after the rain. First of all, that is judgment language, but it's also Genesis language. Genesis 1 on, says, On the fourth day, then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will serve as signs for seasons and for days and years. They will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule over the night as well as stars. God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, to rule the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. Evening came, and then morning, the fourth day. And so we have something that ties us back to Genesis, and God putting those lights in the sky. But the darkening of lights is also used in the prophetic books to declare judgment on the pagans and the people of God. Ezekiel 32 proclaims that judgment on Egypt. When I snuff you out, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give its light. I will darken all the shining lights in the heavens over you, and will bring darkness on your land. This is the declaration of the Lord God. You might recall that one of the plagues in the book of Exodus was one of darkness similar idea. But this is also given sometimes for the people of God, as we see in Amos 8. And in that day, this is the declaration of the Lord God. I will make the sun go down at noon. I will darken the land in the daytime. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will cause everyone to wear sackcloth and every head to be shaved. I will make that grief like mourning for an only son, and its outcome like a bitter day. This is not happy language, um, but this is something that um, is written for our, our, our betterment, something that God has given us to draw us to him. And Jesus actually uses the same language to describe his return. In Matthew 24, he says, Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn, 
and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. And so the day of judgment is often spoken of in such language as we see in Ecclesiastes. This is actually one of the first occurrences of this language chronologically. This is before the prophets. This is before the gospels. Um, arguably, this is one of the first examples of this language. Um, we see this also in Job, but Ecclesiastes, we also see it. And on the day when the guardians of the house tremble, that's verse 3, and the strong men stoop, the women who, gra who grind grain cease because they are few, and the ones who watch the windows see dimly. The doors of the street are shut while the sound of the mill fades. When one rises at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song grow faint. Again, that has parallels to the words of Christ concerning his return. This is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding grain with a handmill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, be alert, since you don't know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, if the homeowner had known what time the thief was coming, he would have stayed alert and not let his house be broken into. This is why you also are also to be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So we see this language carry over into Christ's discourse at the Mount of Olives concerning the destruction of Jerusalem, because in 70 AD, um, the temple was laid, laid under siege, Jerusalem was attacked, and many of the Jews were hauled away, were taken away. And so in part, this is what's promised, but it also points to a coming day. That it's the destruction of Jerusalem as judgment on the Jews for rejecting Christ, but it's also promising his return. Now, I believe that exegetically it is valid to view this text in Ecclesiastes as having both a layer that is morally applicable and a, a layer that is eschatological, which is a, a layer that instructs us on how to live in light of the future. Solomon closes this book by turning his eyes, the eyes of his reader ahead to the future in God. So while we have all this judgment language, it's imp impl implying a future, that there is something to be yet seen, something to yet be experienced. So remember your creator now. Verse 5, also, in addition to all we've said so far, they are afraid of heights and dangers on the road. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper loses its spring, and the caper berry has no effect, for the mere mortal is headed to his eternal home. And mourners will walk around in the street before the silver cord is snapped and the gold bowl is broken, and the jar is shattered at the spring, and the wheel is broken into the well. That is... It's death. That is language of things falling apart, breakage, age, growing old. Things not working like they used to. The grasshopper loses its spring. And I'm reminded of a poem from Herman Melville that writes of the same thing. All feeling hearts must feel for him who felt this picture. Presage dim, dim inklings from the shadowy sphere. Fix him and fascinated here. A demon cloud like the mountain one
burst on a spirit as mild as this earned lake, the home of shades, but Shakespeare's pensive child. Never the lines had lightly scanned, steeped in fable, steeped in fate. The hamlet in his heart was where? Was aware. Such hearts can antedate. No utter surprise can come to him who reaches Shakespeare's core. That which we seek and shun is there, man's final lore. What Melville is saying is you cannot escape this idea of death. It is everywhere. It, it is in our paintings. It is in our poetry. It is in everything. At the core of what Shakespeare wrote, you have the final story, which is death. And James Forrest says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. For you are like a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Psalm 39 says, Lord, make me aware of my end and the number of my days, so that I will know how short-lived I am. In fact, you have made my days just inches long, and my lifespan is as nothing to you. Yes, every human being stands only as a vapor. And so the, begin and so the end of Ecclesiastes points us to its beginning. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. What does a person gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. And that word um, futility, uh, we've talked about quite a bit in the series. In Hebrew, it is hevel, and it literally means vapor or smoke. You could also put this as vapor of vapors. Everything is vapor. And that is what we see here. And the dust returns to the earth as it once was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Everything is futile. It's verse 8 of chapter 12. And so we're reminded of death, and we're reminded of life in the same passage. Hebrews 11 does likewise. Verse 13 says, These all died in faith, although they had not received the things that were promised, but they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. Now those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had an opportunity to return. But they now desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And Hebrews seems to likewise link living and dying in this passage. The people that are listed in the preceding verses, um, Abraham, Moses, Sarah, and so on, are presented as those who live by faith. It also says that they died in faith. They died in faith. We don't always think about that, but they lived in faith and they died in faith. That is our reference point. We are bookended by saving efficacious faith. We live by faith and we die in it. So remember your creator in the days of your youth. And the dust returns to the earth as, as it once was. And the spirit returns to God who gave it. 
Absolute futility, says the teacher. Everything is futile. Joseph Piper once wrote that the explicit denial of the world as creation carries with it vast consequences. When we negate that there is a creator, that plays into our worldview. We've been talking a bit about ethics in the series and how our ethics are in eschatology, that our ethics point more to um, how we live than we realize. That, that fancy word eschatology in this discussion of the end times, that's not just for the charts about the rapture and all this. This is how we live. This is who we live for. And so when we divorce who we are from where we came from, when we divorce who we are from the God who made us, there are dire consequences to our worldview because there is a creator, whether we like it or not. Whether we are cognizant of that or not, there is a creator. And how we live is anchored in our recognition to that fact. We read last week that just as you don't know how the bones come into the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not understand the work of God who made everything. We talked about how you don't know. We don't know. The reality is we're not God, and there is more to be known than just ourselves. In, in reality, we are to know God, to know and fear God, to follow God, to worship God. This is much of what's in Ecclesiastes, is the marriage of these ideas. Know God, worship God, fear God, keep his commandments. Seek wisdom because it flows from him. The philosophical quest, says one author, then presumes at least implicitly the existence of God. And it does so on a philosophical ground, namely a, commit, a commitment to the knowability of things that allows people to ask philosophical questions with existential seriousness, rather than despairing at the outset. So what does that mean? It means that to ask questions, to have an existential question, presumes at least that there's a creator, and does so on grounds that are philosophical, that are logical, that are rational. And so we are talking about a commitment to the knowability of things. And so when we ask hard questions, as Solomon has done for 12 chapters, that means that there is hope for something. The author goes on to say, authentic philosophy greatly strengthens the foundations of hope. How do we get there from the dust returns to the earth? Well, because there's more. There's more than just the dust returning to the earth. We come back to that classic phrase of Solomon, of Hevel. Ecclesiastes 2, um, he says, Therefore I hated life. Why? Because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me. For everything is Hevel, is futile, and a pursuit of the wind. I hated all my work that I labored at under the sun, because I must leave it to the one who comes after me. That is the, the problem that he's been fleshing out through many of these chapters, is what we have in front of us is not permanent. This is not the end game, is money, is success, or wealth, or fame. 
These are things that will eventually be passed out of your hands, if nothing else, than by death. So let us pursue what matters. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. Moving on to verse 9, in addition to the teacher being a wise man, again, he's reiterating his credentials to further validate what he has labored so intensely to communicate. In addition to the teacher being a wise man, he constantly taught the people knowledge. He weighed, explored, and arranged many proverbs, that is, wise sayings. The teacher sought to find delightful sayings and write words of truth accurately. Proverbs 22.17 says, Listen closely, pay attention to the words of the wise, and apply your mind to my knowledge. That he sought to help men find wisdom, help people find truth. It says in 1 Kings that Solomon spoke 3,000 proverbs, and he wrote 1,005 songs. He spoke about trees from the cedar in Lebanon to the hyssop growing out of the wall. He also spoke about animals, birds, reptiles, and fish. Emissaries of all peoples, sent by every king on earth who had heard his wisdom, came to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And so he reiterates that this has validity, all this content here, because it's someone who sought to teach, someone who sought to help other people find wisdom and truth. So listen closely, pay attention to the words of the wise. And apply your mind to my knowledge. Verse 11 says that the sayings of the wise are like cattle prods. And those from masters of collections are like firmly embedded nails. The sayings are given by one shepherd. And we are given a sheep illustration here. A, a cow illustration. A, an agriculture illustration here for two purposes. One, the presence of the sayings of the wise as cattle prods and as embedded nails um, illustrates that they are directing us as a shepherd goads the sheep. Um, similar to how in the Pilgrim's Progress, when Christian is on the journey to the celestial city, there's a point where he is walled in. There are walls on the ends of the path. So he has nowhere else to go but forwards. And likewise... A shepherd may guide his sheep by poking it in the right direction. And sometimes we are stubborn sheep that need to be poked in the right direction. But in addition to that, this illustration asserts that this is all given of one author. It's not just Solomon. It's not the prophets and the judges throughout the Old Testament. It is one shepherd. The sayings of the wise are like cattle prods, and those wise sayings from Masters of collections are like firmly embedded nails. The sayings are given by one shepherd. And that word shepherd, in Hebrew, that is a verb. It's not a noun. We're not talking about a subject. We're talking about an action. We're talking about something that is actively shepherding us. But there's a warning. Verse 12, But beyond these, my son, be warned, that there is no end to the making of many books, and much study wearies the body. In other words, the purpose of all of this, the purpose of the collected sayings, the purpose of them being given of one shepherd, is not mere head knowledge. There is an end to writing books and studying lofty concepts. And the purpose is what? Verse 13, when all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. 
fear God, and keep his commands, because this is for all humanity. Others would, other translations say is the whole duty of man. It literally means this is the all of man. This is his all. This is what makes men whole. It's to fear God and keep his commands. Why? For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. These are the final remarks. Fear God and keep his commands. This is where Solomon leaves us. This is the theme. This is the essence of the book of Ecclesiastes. Fear God and keep his commands. Jesus himself said, If you love me, keep my commandments. For God shall bring judgment, so act accordingly. Live as one who will be judged, not by men, but by the Lord. It says in James, Do not be hearers only, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of a person he is. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it, that is, the one who pursues goodness, who pursues the things of God, who pursues sanctification, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. So let us pursue this. Let us invest in wisdom, as Solomon said. Let us keep the main thing the main thing. Fear God and keep his commands. And how do we do that? How do we live as one who will be judged, not by men but by the Lord? Let us consider that. Romans 5 says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Peter 2 tells us that he, being Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that, having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. How do we live as, as though we are people who will be judged by God? How do we keep the main thing the main thing? Well, one, it's got to be outside of us. Because the reality is every single one of us is a sinner condemned to die. Every one of us has forsaken the ways of God in lieu of our own ideas, our own conceptions of what life should be, of what we should be, of what God should be. And just like Adam and Eve in their pride and disbelief, we have created our own gods in our own images. But God did not leave us there. When we went off the path, when we decided we knew better, he did not give up. He did not stop pursuing he kept seeking us. And he did so in a way that was effective, 100%. And so he sent the Son. Um, he, sent, he offered himself in our place. Because sin has consequences. And those consequences are not great. Those consequences are death. The wages of sin is death. But rather than putting that upon us, God has made a way that that was paid for 
by himself. And so Christ bore our sins in his body on the cross, and he died for sins. He paid the penalty that should have been on us. Having lived the perfect life you and I couldn't live, he paid the penalty that should have been ours. And by that we are healed from our sins. We are he healed from what is wrong, from what is broken. We are healed from our depravity. We were like sheep going astray, but now it says we have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls if we are in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 says, For sin's death came through a man, being Adam. The resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Because the reality is every single one of us, every man, woman, and child who has ever lived, who has ever been, has lived and died either in Adam or in Christ, in the ways and the patterns of Adam or in the ways and the patterns of Christ. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each is in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. Christ was risen from the dead first. He's the firstborn from the dead. Afterwards, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So Christ was raised first. And those who are in Christ will be raised after him. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. And then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be abolished is death, for God has put everything under his feet. There is coming a day where sin and death and destruction will be no more. When Christ um, reigns in our midst, when he rose from the dead, he was installed as king. Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore and go. Go make disciples. That is what he tasked the early church with. And in that kingship, we are called to submit. Knowing that everything that is not in accordance with his rule will be brought low and will be done away with. Including death and sin itself. There will, be, there will come a day where sin is no longer a tangible thing. It is the last shadow to pass over the horizon. There will be a day where it is a distant memory. Where the sin that once bound us, that once held us captive, will be but a distant memory. And how do we come into that? We submit to the Lordship of God. We repent and believe that Jesus is who he said he is. We come to Christ with faith and repentance, knowing that we are wretched sinners in need of mercy. And we lay ourselves down at his feet for his ways, for all that he is. Acts 17 says, The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everything life and breath and all things. From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth, and has predetermined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. And he did this so that they might seek God, and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, 
for we are also his offspring. Since then, we are God's offspring. We shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people, everywhere, to repent, because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed, that is Christ. And he has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. I implore you to be reconciled to God, to draw near to Christ, to repent and believe that Jesus is Lord and he is Messiah. And he died for sin, was risen from the dead as confirmation of his power over sin and death. And be made new in his image, be made new as his ransomed people. Come unto Christ today. Thank you for listening. This has been the Bread of the Word podcast. Bread of the Word is a podcast ministry striving to feed people the wonderful words of God, book by book, chapter by chapter, and verse by verse, striving to let the word speak for itself. This ministry is also a member of the Truth and Love Network, a diverse fellowship of fellow podcasts of different theological backgrounds united in the gospel of God. For more from the Bread of the Word podcast or the Truth and Love Network, check out the links below and follow us on social media. Until next time, God bless. Matthew 4.4